Mindfulness Mode 169. I always just connect to my breath when they're when I'm having pain, when I'm having joy, whatever it is. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. On Mindfulness Mode, we talk about how people from all walks of life have discovered mindfulness and how it's impacted their lives to help them become more calm, focused, and happy. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I am really excited to have Matt Marr on the line today. Hey, Matt, are you in mindfulness mode? Bruce, I sure am because I just had my first sip of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) that's good i have to admit i have not had a sip of coffee so i'm gonna this is going to be real whatever it is it's not caffeine induced what i'm saying to you today but matt marr has a unique way of helping people with their problems and he uses his love of talking and his degree in clinical psychology to make a huge impact referred to by some as the gay white oprah matt loves to empower his clients in ways they never dreamed of. As a narrative therapist, Matt believes that our lives can be seen through a story metaphor with characters of fear, hope, depression, addiction, all contributing to the narrative. So we're going to cover a lot of ground, Matt, and I'm looking sure. forward to it. How are you anyway? I'm I'm great. I'm very great. You know, that's actually, coffee kind of actually is very mindfulness to me in that it's just the ritualistic of it. I know that it, it, whether it's because I usually call, I sit and I have quiet and I have coffee and I often if I have time in the morning, that's when I'll, I'll do some journaling or something like that. So even just having the one cup here with you, it it kind of, you know, it's like a trigger memory. It does, I'm not journaling. I'm not doing all that, but it does kind of give me that a little bit. So I'm ready to go. I'm grounded. Oh, that's super. So you're grounded and you're mindful. What exactly does mindfulness mean to you, Matt? You know, mindfulness to me is, I, I you know, I was thinking about this because I knew you were going to ask it. And for me, the first word that, it's not the smartest word, but the word that pops up is noticing. That's just mm. what came up for me. And I think maybe that was the first back in the gateway for me to, cause I did like try to do meditation and all this. And I just wasn't getting it. Like my, mm-hmm. there were so many thoughts going in my brain and I couldn't, I get rid of them. Cause I thought you had to get rid of your thoughts and clear your mind and all, and all that. And, yeah. but so then when someone said mindfulness, it was actually a professor when I was in grad school, uh, because we use a lot of mindfulness and therapy uh, all the time, especially within like the last 10 years. But, um, he just, he was doing a mindfulness exercise in class and he said, I just want you to notice, notice things, notice your body. And that was a good word for me. I think that is why I'm a narrative therapist because I always believe that if I'm saying something and a client's not getting it, I'm just not using their words or the right words. And so that was the right word when he said noticing that kind of got it to click in for me. So whenever I feel like I, I can't settle or I can't calm down, I'm like, okay, I just need to notice I need to notice like the hair standing on my arms and I need to notice my fingers connected to my palms. And then that's when I start to like really settle in. Well, when did you first notice that you had such a knack for humor and being funny? Were you always funny? I mean, you know, I'm from Southern Oklahoma, so I'm from a very loud Southern family. So if you didn't step up 
and uh, <laughs> and get with the and get with the storytelling. You were gonna yeah. sugar. You were gonna be lost in the crowd. So <laughs> I, I think that um, I think you know that one. Yes. So it was my family. I also think a lot of it is just go. You know, I was obsessed with Wonder Woman as a kid. I still am. I have a Wonder Woman. I'm drinking from a Wonder Woman coffee mug now. And I um, I was a feminine kid in Southern Oklahoma. I love to act. I love to sing. I really wasn't into sports. I had a big lisp. So. I found early that if I, again, I mean, you hear this a lot from people that experience bullying and things of that nature. I found if I made people laugh or I made people smile, then they would want to be my friend instead of beating me up. So I think it was a survival skill, honestly, that I learned at a very young age. Hmm. Cool. So what age were you when you realized that you were probably gay? You know, I realized... You know, it's different for everybody. So I just mm-hmm. want to put that out there for anybody listening that think, oh, that was my friend Tyler's experience too, or Jessica, it's not. So, right, right. but for me, and this is true of most LGBT people um, or LGB people, not trans is different, but I knew I was different. I knew I was different at a very young age. And, you know, especially when you're five or six, I necessarily wasn't sexualized or anything, but I just remember thinking, well, I love Wonder Woman and I, I wasn't into like playing with dolls or anything. I still loved He-Man and G.I. Joe, but still I knew I was different from the other boys. Mm. And but I was different than the girls, too. I didn't really seem to fit in. So I grew up con differences. And then I remember I was in eighth grade and I remember they we had like an eighth grade lock in to celebrate the end of the year at school. And I'll right. never forget that the boys were playing basketball. And of course I was up in the girls with the girls in the stands and we were gossiping. It was like stranger things, 19, <laughs> you know, these are the eighties yeah. or early nineties actually. Yeah. And, um, sitting there chatting with my girls. And then I remember the boys decided to play a new game and they decided to do shirts and skins. And I'll uh-huh. never forget the one cute guy, Jerry, who was like the, the high school hunk. I'll never forget him taking off his shirt and me going, Oh, well, this is not good. <laughs> and I go, oh, that's what this is. So that, that was really kind of my first moment of, okay. And at the time I had a girlfriend. So of course I was freaking out like, oh, what, what's happening? So for me, it was a little later when I got the gay thing, but I made up for it. I made up for it. And was there a period of time where you felt like you had to cover it up and pretend and not be who you really were? I mean, definitely, I came out when I was 19, so pretty much right Mm -hmm. after college, like a lot of people do. And for me in high school, there was, you know, there well, there's different kind of cover-ups. When I was younger, there was a little bit of covering up to be masculine, because there's two different types of things. It's if you're gay and you're masculine, and you're a bro, and you can pass and play sports and all that, Mm -hmm. it's easier for you in some ways, because you kind of pass through. But in other ways, it's harder, because then when... You've gotten accustomed to that privilege, to that privilege of being assumed masculine and that privilege of being in the club. Whereas me, I was so, Bruce, I was so gay. I mean, like glitter flying out everywhere probably when I was born. So like rainbow glitter. And I didn't have a choice. It was, I was obvious that I was different. So by the time, um, so I, tr- I didn't really try to cover up the masculine thing because that's not who I could be. But then, right. but there was in high school, like, I was like, oh, everybody else has a girlfriend. Everybody else is starting to go to first base and second base. I'm not, I'm not doing that. And honestly, that's when I think like in growing up in Oklahoma, uh, you know, there's in a small town, there's pretty much two things people do in high school. And that's either um, 
have sex or usually drink. And, you know, in a small country town, as high schoolers kind of yeah. swearing. So I drank. I mean, not a lot. I didn't luckily never developed a problem with drinking or anything. But I was the one that would like have a couple of beers and make everybody laugh. We're all hooking <laughs> up. And then. Okay. Yeah. Because you would, you make people laugh anyway. I don't think you even have to have beer to do that. <laughs> well, no, I don't. But I mean, I think that definitely yeah. kind of came my, my MO and, and, you know, I was, I was a mascot in high school. High school was really good for me, actually. And I mm -hmm. love my people talk about Oklahoma being very conservative and kind of not accepting. And a lot of people there are. But I'm very feel very lucky with my own family and all my friends back home. I mean, they are anytime I have a win or a commercial or something like that. I mean, my Facebook blows up. I get cards from my teachers from high school. So I'm very lucky that the very loving community. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's fantastic. So I'm surprised that you went through high school and didn't come out until you were 19 because, you know, those can be some challenging years going through high school. But uh, tell me about homophobia. Did you experience that very much during high school? I mean, yeah, very, you know, more in middle school, actually. Middle school was harder because that's when everybody's like going through puberty. In middle mm -hmm. school, I don't know what it is for Canada, but that's so basically sixth through eighth grade here. So 13, 12, 13 to, 15, to 14, 14 right. years old. Um, and that's when everybody, like their bodies are changing, hormones are raging, everybody's hooking up or trying to have their first kiss and all that kind of stuff. That right. was hard for me then because I wasn't, I had no desire to pursue all the other first that everybody was trying to achieve. And so that's when I remember, um, and that's when I started doing choir and things like that. So that's when I would get called fag a lot or sissy and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, um, and, and late, like in fifth grade too, fourth and fifth, but really it was that middle school period. And then high school, again, I just, I think you know, um, it really was, I was able to thank God um, literally, that art saved me, I think, because I was an actor, because I was a singer, and I was good at them. And in, for my very small town, I was very good at them. So people would be like, wow, he's super talented in that. So it kind of gave me it gave me a, a podium to stand on that people respected me a bit more. And they also, you know, they probably some in the back of their head knew that I was either gay or different, but they, they didn't care because I was trying to be a good person. And um, I was, you know, active in my church and an active volunteer and also, you know, doing stuff and trying to be a good member of this, of society, you know. Also, I was very lucky because my older brother, who was a senior when I was a freshman, was very protective of me, as well as my best friend, Sean, who was like, who was a year older than me. So that was another thing, too. I think that helped in high school. People didn't pick on me because they knew that my, they knew my friends would who were big jocks would beat them up. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, I can make a difference. Yeah, that made a big difference. And so I just say that to people listening, that it is important to have, you know, definitely I'm a, such an example is that you can't do things on your own. You need community, you need support. And I luckily had that. Um, right. So college, I went to my undergrad, I went to the University of North Texas, which is a the largest music program in the world, I believe. I know in the United States it's not the world. And so I went to scholarship there studying opera, vocal performance. So so that was a little better because I'm around a bunch of artists. And, you know, sure. some I'll say it, some stereotypes are true and that a lot of artists are just, you know, happen to be happen to be gay or bisexual or whatever and so or lesbian. So there obviously people were much more accepting there in some way, but it's still, I was one of the first people to kind of come out 
And so I do remember I didn't have a lot of I had friends, but I didn't have any other like gay friends or lesbian friends that I could kind of talk to about issues I was going through because it still was Texas. This still, yeah. I started college in 1997. So you have to think there was no Will and Grace. It, it, Will and Grace, I think, came on my freshman or sophomore year of high school. There was no Queer as Folk on TV in America. There was none of this. So it changed, though, because I remember in college, people were like, in the beginning of college, they were more of, oh, you're gay. I don't really know how to work with that. But you're still the same, <laughs> you're still the same Matt. So that's confusing to me. I thought you would change and be fabulous and be a drag queen, which is awesome. <laughs> but that wasn't who I was. Right. And, then, but, but then by the end of the senior year, like, especially a lot of girls would be like, oh, my gosh, I want to be your grace, which sounds like sounds like it's diminishing or. But at the time, like that was the progression. That's how big Will and Grace was for acceptance of, of not just gay people, but friendships of gay and straight people and building allies within the community. It was huge for that. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. And so then you you decided then you wanted to move on from being an opera singer or or were you an opera singer for a period of time you know no I really you know I wasn't I studied music and I really wasn't I went to this great school but also I went to a school where I was not des- definitely the top of the heap when I all you know I'm such an example that necessarily what you're good at initially is not what you're quote-unquote meant to do because you know I've always Again, that's what was felt so j- joyful about doing doing my podcast, the Dear Maddie Show, is that I actually was obsessed with talk shows as a kid. Uh, as like, and I remember, especially in like fourth, fifth grade, watching the Oprah Winfrey Show uh, and hearing these people's stories on that show. And I, even in middle school, up into high school, I would tape the show. And I would in middle school, I would come home. And I would watch it and I would press pause before Oprah would ask a question and I would pretend to ask my question or I would try to guess what Oprah's going to ask. Like I was already trying to be a host at a very young age. But what that was so powerful for me is that that was the first time that even though my family was very loving and I kind of had this love bubble at home, it was I make it sound better than it was. But I, I was very lucky as far as bullying and being picked on. I was. But at the same time, because I had this supportive kind of love bubble at home, when I went to um, to school, yes, I was bullied. Yes, people said that I held my hands like a girl and I walked like a girl and things like that. But I could combat that a little bit because I had this love bubble at home. And then, as you know, with bullying, it's such a huge, huge difference in uh, resiliency rates for kids that are dealing with bullying to have a supportive either family unit or some type of like safe space to go to, whereas the ones that don't. And um, so luckily I had the safe space and it really, but but it was great because, you know, here on Oprah, I saw a gay man talk about, I'll never forget that. I don't even remember the guy's name, but I remember his face and what it looked like. And he was talking about his boyfriend and he was talking about how he wanted to hopefully one day get married in this country and they wanted a dog and children. And that opened up my world because that's what I wanted. And I thought, though, because I was a gay kid in Oklahoma, um, especially during the 80s, this is Reagan and all that. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I really yeah. thought that my only options were I was going to have to become a woman and that I was going to get AIDS. And no matter what, I was going to die and go to hell. And that was kind of my reality of what I thought was going to happen to me. So seeing this person on a talk show totally changed my perspective. Wow. Wow. And so then you, uh, you kind of moved on and you got into being a clinical psychologist. 
Yeah, I think it was. Again, art saved me. It got me out of Oklahoma. It got me into California, which, um, you know, I studied music. And then I kind of took a year off to figure out what I wanted to do. And I really wanted to do, um, I wanted to do acting. I actually was, what really got me to California is that um, I have a I have a Canada kind of connection. Actually, Canada helped move me to L.A. Bruce, cool. Um, oh, I got to hear this. I am probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest, Shania Twain fan in the world. I love Shania okay. Twain, and um, as you know from Timmins, and um, mm-hmm. so I mean, back in '98, I went to a concert, and long story short on that, but my I was in the like the third or fourth row, and Shania, like I made a sign. And she saw my sign and she called me on stage and I ended up getting to sing a song with Shania Twain, which was wow. one of the best moments of my life, like life changing. And that just, it was so joyous and I was so comfortable on stage with her and she was so kind. And so that was great in itself. But then later on, you know, this was back in the day of like Yahoo chat boards. And of course I was a part of like, I forgot what it was called. It was called like the Shania Yahoo group. And it was just a bunch of Shania fans. Just like, <laughs> yeah. I, obviously I was single, Bruce, very single. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and we were just talking about, you know, like our love of Shania and things like that. And then somebody said, oh, there's this contest. You should totally enter. I think you would be funny. And it was a contest by Country Music Television where they were doing a show about Shania's biggest fan, and I won it. And so what oh, they cool. did is they – I was a summer camp counselor at a t- the time in Massachusetts because summer camp's always been a big deal for me too. And then um, – so I was in, in like western Massachusetts in the Berkshires, and they flew me from – uh, from camp, they flew me to Toronto and then flew me – and then I went on like a little puddle jumper – to Timmins, and they basically right. filmed me going around. I didn't meet Shania again, but they filmed me going around to all of the hometown in Timmins and seeing where Shania worked and seeing where she went to school. And I interviewed her math teacher and I interviewed her boss, the McDonald's. And it was great because I was hosting. And it was the first time in my life. It was just me looking at the camera, talking to the camera about why I love Shania Twain. And it totally, again, when you're from Oklahoma, you think, well, how am I going to be a host? I don't know anybody who's a host. That's a California thing. And it was it was huge. Cause, and even the producers said, you're really natural at this. Have you ever thought about doing it before? And it was that inner dream that I always wanted to pursue, but I never told anybody because I was just too scared to let it out. And I, would, I didn't know how to express it. So here it is. My passion for her kind of showed this. And two weeks later, I made the move to California, to Los Angeles to pursue acting. And then, so that, but then, and then I moved out here and I totally was like, whoa, and I had to get used to LA. And so I tried acting and it didn't really go well at the time. And then I started volunteering for, um, so I did that for several years. And then I volunteered for a suicide helpline called the Trevor Project. Okay. And it's uh, for LGBT youth, but anybody suicidal can call as a helpline counselor. I, I volunteered for that for, for a year or two. And then within that, I thought, oh, I think counseling would be interesting for me. And that's what led me to get my master's. And then so I was doing my internships and stuff, getting my master's in clinical psychology. And that's kind of what led me to working with a lot with youth and working with bullying. But also after that, just somebody said, oh, you should try commercials. And I started doing commercials and started getting work from that and kind of led me back into doing hosting and acting and stuff like that. But so that's, that was kind of my story of where I got from. Sorry, I felt it was a long story, but no, it's good. It's very interesting. Well, fascinating. I think, you know, it's like 
for a lot of people, I think that are interested in podcasts that are listening to, you know, we're cur- people that listen to podcasts. And I feel like people that podcasts are curious and I'm always been curious. And I jokingly say I have gay DD and it actually, <laughs> it, it kind of saved me though. Cause I'm always driven by curiosity as I'm sure you are too, Bruce. And so, yes, I am. and it's okay. Let your curiosity drive you. You don't have to necessarily, my nephew's in a freshman in college right now. And I keep telling him, you don't have to decide what you want to do for the rest of your life today. You just have to decide what you want to do today and follow that. Yeah. And that's mindfulness, isn't it? it? It Yes, it is. It is mindfulness. Yeah. 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 Really. And so you, you got into helping, uh, kids who are bullied and what did you do to help them? What was your advice? How did you work through it? Well, for me it was, so one of my friends, um, her name is Jessica and Jessica, uh, Jessica Weisbuck. And we, she actually works at the Gay and Lesbian Center, um, here in Los Angeles, which is the world's largest, but she also, we went to school together at the same time. And kind of in school, they wanted us to do something working with the youth, and we were interested. And that at the time was, this was like 2008, 2009, so bullying was really kind of blowing up. And there was many, sadly, many suicides happening in the right. LGBT community. Um, right. Dan Savage's YouTube campaign of It Gets Better was really starting to like grow and get momentum. And so we wanted to... We wanted to do something. We actually, so we started at the Gay and Lesbian Center. It's still going on now. Uh, or I think it's actually called the Los Angeles LGBT Center now. But it's uh, we started. We called them community action networks. And so what we thought, instead of us necessarily giving the advice on how to tell the kids uh, to get it past bullying, which is great, we wanted to do something that was that was peer driven and peer led. So we started these community action groups and basically we taught the kids. It's based off the Marshall Gantz is a professor at Harvard and he talks about this uh, technique that he calls public narrative. And it's used a lot in politics. Um, and basically public narrative breaks down. I, uh, I can send you this for show notes or things. It's, it's like a five page article. It's not long, but basically talks about there's three parts of the, st- of a story and we need three parts of a story to activate people to motivate change and or to be motivated for change. And so one of them was the first part was the story of self. And so that's my story. And then there's a story of us, which is the shared story or the story we have together as a community. And then the story of now or the story of urgency. So what are we going to do to change the change something since we have a story. And so like for you and me, I'm sure like I've talked to you about like being curious and what podcasting is for me. And so that's my story. But then Bruce, you hear that and you're like, oh, and you said, yeah, me too. You're curious as well. So now we have this story of like curiosity together and we know that we have this shared commonality. So then it's about, well, then what can we do if we wanted to do some, what's something we feel like we could we could be curious together about and change. And we both are passionate about bullying because that's a shared story too. So maybe we'll work together and do something and create something. So that's kind of the breakdown of what it is. And we did that with the kids of having, they all began to, um, we started with a small group of eight and they, we worked with them for eight weeks on how to tell their story in a powerful way of how to tell their story of being bullied and how they overcame it and kind of what was a choice point in their life where they decided they either could be they could be a victim of bullying or they could be empowered by it. So we worked with them for like eight weeks 
And then once we felt like they were really um, adept at telling their story, then we sent them out to schools and private schools and public schools in the Los Angeles area. And that's what's still going on now. Is So now these kids are going out into their communities and they're talking about bullying from their own perspective and how it changed them and why they feel like we need to do something different. And these are kids that were bullied and kids that were bullies. We have both. And so it's hugely powerful. And I could say this, you know, Jess and I ended up starting Camp Brave Trails, which was a leadership camp for LGBT right. youth. But and we, we did that because we saw the power of how when the kids peer to peer are talking to other peers that are bully, it's almost like they have a shorthand and how quickly they could get to one another and really change the narrative within their school system or within their peer group really quickly. It was, it, it was beautiful. It was beautiful, beautiful to see and, and life-changing. Uh, it definitely, again, solidified the importance of community to me. Wow. Well, it's amazing what you're doing to make a difference. Can you tell a story that happened at Camp Brave Trails? Can you tell us like some little individual vignette of, of something that just pops into your head that would be just fascinating for us to hear? Yeah, I can tell a story of, you know, with Brave Trails, there, Brave Trails truly was, you know how people will say, oh my gosh, this poutine is amazing. It tastes so yeah. amazing. See how I said poutine? See how I brought it in? There? Yeah, I, I, I saw how you did that. Yeah. I love poutine. <laughs> that, that is good. Um, but, uh, and that's true. That's, it is amazing. But Brave Trails was truly, and as I've, I'm sure you've seen in your work as well, like truly amazement of seeing miracles happen in front of your face. And that was happening the entire two weeks of camp. But for me, one story that really stood out was there what just what happens when you give people the space to be themselves. And I'll never forget that there's um, there was this one kid, he's Chinese American. His um, so his family's from China and he he lives in a Los Angeles area and he came to camp very much dressed in the like he looked like he was in a prep boy school outfit and dressed as a boy. And mm-hmm. then he started to change every day because at Brave Trails, you know, cabins are not separated by gender. They're separated by age group. There's two counselors in every cabin. Um, there, we the, All the bathrooms are non-gendered. So we really try to take gender as much as we can out of the equation for for the for trans-identified uh, kids, but also for really everyone. It just makes it a safer space because, again, as a gay boy, you have to feel like you have to be a, a boy, masculine more. We're just taking that out. Well, so for this kid – the first day you came as a prep school. And then the next day you see like he got it. He like painted a couple of his nails. And then the next day, like he borrowed a blouse from one of his cabin mates. And then cut to by the end of camp, he's dressing much more feminine, wearing heels and could not see the smile stop from this kid's face. Just and how much more how quiet he was at the beginning of camp and then by the end of the camp, not only was he talking to other people, but he was coming up with ideas and he was become because what they do, we do at camp, one of the big projects is we do a social entrepreneurship. So it's what we do is we develop them, we develop philanthropic uh, service ideas that they want to do and take back to their community. Like some kids started a trans clothing drive for when kids transition, some do letter writing campaigns to their, their, their senators or in their... They do building safe spaces in their church or school, whatever they want to do. And for him, he was starting to lead these groups. And it was truly amazing. It was truly amazing to see him not only just smiling, but starting conversations, starting leadership skills. But then also what was so 
kind of a, a again brought us back into the real world. So I'll never forget the last day of camp. I was being a camp director, what I do or did, and making sure all the bathrooms were cleaned out and everything like that. And um, so I was walking into the bathroom to make sure that everything was cleaned out. And I saw him in the bathroom, and he was just scrubbing his nails furiously. And he was so, I could tell he was so scared and terrified because he had to go back to the real world. And he had to not be able to, he couldn't, wasn't able to express himself even though his parents loved him, especially coming from China, they just didn't understand. And is he trans? I don't know. It's just, but he still wasn't able to express himself. And I stopped him and I said, are you going to be okay? And he just started to cry. And I hugged him and let him know that, you know, he can always have his nails painted here at camp. He can be whoever he wants to. And, we, and I told him, I said, I know the real you and you know the real you now. And you have a community that knows the real you and that can't be taken away from you. And so it's going back to building that safe space for people that are bullied, where they know they can just be themselves. And I, I think that was probably the, one of the most powerful moments for me. Wow, that is an incredible story. Like, what a transformation that went on inside that kid's mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, amazing, amazing. I know that you mentioned meditation, but I'm just wondering, Matt, is there any form that meditation takes for you? Because you said meditation itself doesn't really work for you, but for a lot of people, you know, they find a form of meditation in some other activity. Is that something that you do? It works now. It works for me now. You know, I had a really good um, meditation teacher. Uh, Her name is Tia Reese. Actually, I interviewed her on my podcast. Um, I forget which episode that is. Maybe like within like I think the first like 15 episodes way back in the day but mm-hmm. she she was the first person that told me uh, she described the scene as we were going through a meditation of instead of clearing your mind she gave me this image of just imagining your thoughts are a sea and that they don't go away they don't they don't they don't surface they're just always part of the sea and they float over here and they float over there and we can float where we want to float and I don't know why that clicks so deeply with me, but that's when I got it. That's when, because I really did, I had a lot of pressure of trying to clear my mind and I couldn't necessarily get rid of my thoughts, but that was a way almost, I feel like, this is so funny, but I would imagine that if I had a thought that was really sticking out to me, I would, Im- I would imagine that it would be sitting on the wave, almost like a little surfboard or just like a little rubber ducky. And then it would still be on the water but it would just float out of, it would just gently float away. And that was such a good visual for me to actually kind of release my thoughts and kind of just be able to notice my body more and notice my breathing. Um, that really, that was huge for me. And again, she was really good at connecting me with breath, which I'm lucky that I was a trained singer because at a very young age and you know, I'm 13 years old talking about diaphragmatic breaths and what it is mm-hmm. to take a good breath. And, you know, right. truly, I feel I even with when I've done, you know, like a massage or an acupuncture, or if I have to get a shot, they're like, oh, you're you're so great at this. And it's because I always just connect to my breath when they're when I'm having pain, when I'm having joy, whatever it is. And so I was very lucky to learn that skill very young in life. Oh, wow. So my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just oh, yeah. short 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. So who is one person that you would say has really influenced you in your mindfulness practice? 
I would say yes, my friend Tia on the, who was on mm-hmm. my show, but also I really have to say my friend Jessica Weisbuck, who and colleague, the one that I started break girls right. with. She was really good. She because she we would do mindfulness exercises in the group, and we would start with the group every every time to start our group, and that would really center us. So and just again, she would just focus on your breathing or feeling your butt sit in the chair, things like that, and that really uh-huh. was easy, quick and easy for me. Wow. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Matt? I think mindfulness has affected my emotions in that it has allowed my emotions to be what they truly are instead of what my fear or doubt or my shame almost mix them up to be. They, they present as if they truly are into, into the, the soul of who I am instead of what kind of gets mixed up in fear and, and societal norms and things like that. Right. You've already talked quite a bit about breathing, so I'm just going to jump to the next question. Could you recommend a book that's related to mindfulness? You know, I was trying to think of this because I knew that you were going to ask me. And so for me, I think there's something about going back to what you loved as a child. And so I found I do really good mindfulness and meditation exercises after I read a comic book. So I'd say that to people – you don't have to read the mindfulness book if you don't want to. What was something you truly loved? If you love Nancy Drew, maybe read a chapter of that because it gets you in touch with that, that joy you had as a kid. And then you'll be surprised. I do this a lot with coaching clients. I'm like, get them to find the joy they had and then use that kind of moment to go forth into either mindfulness or meditation or artistic work. And that's been helpful for me. Wow. I really like that. Can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful? An app, again, and I was like, an app, because, you know, again, I feel like I need to have this pressure of a meditation app that's really (laughs) great. So for me, again, because I'm a musician, I say Spotify. Spotify is great for me. And I, there's uh, one, a meditational singer that I love, and his name is Giresh, and that's spelled G is as in uh, go, I-R-I, S is in Sam H, Giresh. And he has a channel on Spotify. And just a beautiful voice and but really like that finding music that really can take you really quickly and to get you in that mode, that's really helpful for me. Oh, that's a great suggestion. So what advice would you give to a person who is new to this whole idea of mindfulness and they'd like to start using it in their life? Let perfection go away whenever you're, don't just get that out of your mind. Cause that was for me, I felt like I needed, I was always the the straight A perfect student. And I'm like, if I'm meditating, I've got to like have pillows. I've got to do this. No, imperfect moments are great. One of the best places I think to cultivate meditation, honestly, is on the toilet, especially for a lot of my listeners. (laughs) You're the first person, Matt, that has said this. (laughs) Well, maybe because my father's a plumber, but also my, you know, I have a lot of my listeners are, are women and they're moms and they're really trying to just, they don't have a lot of time. And sometimes the bathroom is the only time that they have five minutes away from their kids, which I don't think it's good to sit on the toilet for too long because you get hemorrhoids. So there's that. But still, I always say if you go, you know, you have to go to the bathroom, even if you just sit in a chair later and just sit and breathe deeply for two minutes and just notice the air hitting your skin. I've said that to people and they're like, wow, just that one little technique has totally changed the way I deal with my children when I go back out there into the house, into the world. Right. Right. Matt, it has been really great talking to you. Tell us about your podcast and how we can connect with you. Sure. Yeah. You can find everything from me at dearmattyshow.com and that's D-E-A-R-M-A-T-T-I-E 
show.com dear maddie show um the and all my social media is the matt mar two t's two r but the dear maddie show yeah it's basically you know it's therapy it's humor it's heart it's helpful advice hopefully it's kind of like dear abby but with me so listeners writing advice and i have a guest host every week and we really we try to help people but at the same time i want people to smile as well so it's kind of you know, if Oprah and Ellen had a baby on Dolly Parton's front porch, that's my show, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, I like that. And yeah, and they can find Dear if you just look for Dear Maddie on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts, you will be able to download that. And I have a YouTube channel that I do uh, every Thursday. I do a video of a Dear Maddie advice question. So they can just go to the website, DearMaddieShow.com. Uh, sounds great. Well, I really appreciate all that you're doing. You're really making life better for so many people. Thank you for being on Mindfulness Mode today, Matt. Bruce, it was wonderful. Thank you so, so much. Yeah, my pleasure. You have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye now. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.